0: So I don't know why you came to church today. I don't know whether you're brand new today. I don't know whether you're a believer or whether you're exploring God for the first time. But as we sang these words, I hope that uh, the Spirit of God just spoke directly to you. That you sang them from a place where you could say, I want to believe that too. How great indeed is our God. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, it is good to call on your name. It's good to see that you are the lion and the lamb. And that inside you, inside your son, inside the spirit, between the three of you, Lord, that we we can capture a greater and a clearer and a more beautiful expression every day. God, you call us to a new place. Bless us, transform us, we ask this, by your son's name. Amen and amen. Blessings have a seat. When we speak of God and speak how great he is, it's beautiful to say the words, it's another thing to be able to live the words. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you, we sing about how great God is, and, uh, and we speak about how great he is. Thanks so much. Actually, I'm going to use it today, so but you were like ahead of me this time, but why well, you're so good, and I appreciate that. We speak about it, we, we know who he is, and it's just it's amazing how yet the contrast between those two things, the reality of who God is and the reality of how we are, can just break away so quickly. I, uh, I like to be able to say that I love people, and I love all people, and then I meet somebody. <laughs> and, and, I, and I could literally be singing how great you are, oh God, and I could be just so in tune with that, but yet... Somebody could come and speak to me and do something, and I'd be like, oh, and he could just take me off skew. You ever had that happen to you? You're like, no, I'm so in tune. No? I mean, it happens, right? Has it ever happened to you? Good. How many of you are in denial? Yes. All right, good. Well, it does, it does, it happens to us. The difficulty is that we forget to remember that hurting people hurt people as well sometimes, right? And so when somebody hurts you, it's not because they're trying to hurt you, it's that they're hurting themselves. And this is what God tries to teach us, is that if we could just for one moment just pause and look at them the way that God looks at them, maybe we'd see how great God is even inside the moment that's taking place inside there. So as a rule, what I try to do, I try to do, is that if somebody is being difficult, I try to love them more. Oh, it's so hard. And then what I try to do, and this is very popular, uh, because everybody says, you know, we should live this way, we become more open, and we become more vulnerable, and we share more. And the thing is that the more you share, the better it is sometimes, but then the other times it becomes more dangerous because you give them more ammunition, right? And then they're like, oh, no, no, I know this about you. Da da You're like, oh, no, I shouldn't be so honest and so open. <sighs> and so it becomes more and more complicated, and you're like, how do I overcome this complexity all the time? Because you're just trying to live what God has called you to be. Because when you see God, he is so great. He is so amazing. You want to be in that place with him all the time. Well, what we have to do is we have to kind of retell that. I mean, this is what happens to companies all the time, right? That companies hire communication directors, marketing directors, PR gurus, because they realize that they can say, this is who we are. We have a vision, and we have a mission, and we have statements, and we have logos. We have all those wonderful things, but we have to retell that story because people forget. The board forgets. The leaders, the leaders forget. The C-suite forgets. Everybody forgets. You walk through the office, and they forget. They're like, what's the name of the company? I don't know. Where's the shirt that tells me? I don't know. I'm just so busy, so locked in in the minutia that I forget why I'm actually here. And we do this. We do this in church. We do this in schools, we do this in companies, we do this in hospitals, we do this all over the place. It's so easy to do this with God. It's so easy to do this with religion and to do this with faith as well, right? You have an image of who God is, you're growing your image of who God is, and sometimes we, we forget that story, and that story has to be retold over and over and over and over again. I see some of you have the manuscripts, and you're know, like, where is he in the manuscript?" Just... Follow along. I'm following the manuscript. word to word, it's all inside there. If you're like not with me, then just trust me, I'm still inside there. I'm not uh, ask you. it's still inside there. It's, I'm with you. I'm with you. If you feel like I'm off, just I'll come back to it at some point. By the end. I promise. <laughs> But honestly, this is what, this is what God calls us to do, to retell the story over and over again. So what I like to do is sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I like to imagine why they retold the story. And in fact, I, I want you to think about this. Uh, there's a great story here, and I, I think about this in John chapter 12. And you're like, I thought we were in Isaiah. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. But John chapter 12, and this is a, a great passage. It's actually page 996 in your Bibles, in your pew Bibles. So if you grab your pew Bibles... Or you may have a a Bible already, then grab your Bible, John chapter 12, or your pew Bible, it's page 996. And I wonder about this because think about the, the apostles and who they had as role models. They would have had the greats like Esther. They would have had the greats like Jeremiah. They would have had the greats like Moses, the books written, the Torah. They would have had all these great prophets in their mind. These would be the people who had penned stories and retold stories, and they would have been looking for the Messiah. And then when they found the Messiah in Jesus Christ, can you imagine what it would have been like to walk with Jesus? To say, here's the anointed one. And now I'm going to walk with this. I'm going to walk with the Messiah. And as I walk with the Messiah, I'm going to tell you what it was like for them to receive the Messiah. Because I received the Messiah, the whole thing again and do the whole Iron Man thing, you know. I did this last week, um, so it was like a frequency thing, and uh, I need two hands to do this. I wish I could do this with one hand, but uh, I'm not that adept. So this is the Iron Man look of preaching. If you've not seen Iron Man, imagine me. Um, way better. All right, here we go. Power pulsating through my heart. Oh, this is good. I'm going to write a whole sermon metaphor about this. It just came to me. All right, here we go. (laughs) So uh, imagine what the joy they would have had as they discovered the Anointed One. And discovering the Anointed One, knowing the Anointed One, they're saying, I want to tell you the story over and over again. So John chapter 12, page 996 in your Bibles, this is what John records as one of the stories, one of the encounters as he tries to tell you about how great God is. He says this, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Remember Isaiah, they remember him. Lord, who has believed what heard from us? and To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because... He saw his glory and spoke of him. This is what they knew. They knew of Isaiah. And when they thought of Isaiah, they said, Isaiah knew how great God is because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is what it is. It was just like amazing them. Isaiah for them was just a, a, an incredible character. I mean, Isaiah is the one in Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. He, he's the one who says, a cry in the wilderness. Behold, there is some becoming 700 years in advance. Isaiah is going to declare that John the Baptist will arrive and prepare the way for the Messiah. Isaiah was the one that they looked to as the messianic prophet. He was the one who was going to tell them, this is the promise. The hope is coming assured. This is the one who saw God. And they said, this Isaiah, this Isaiah revealed Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he went and did great things, amazing things, this is the response that took place. The text continues, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. Well, wow. what would you trade Jesus in for? Hmm? What would you trade Jesus in for? If you had a picture where you suddenly discovered how great God is, what would you trade God in for? When I met Lindsay for the very first time, um, just a while ago, I was uh, very pleased, glad to have Lindsay voted in. And by the way, uh, just so you understand this, Um, there are several of you I see here who are are not members of the church, right? You are partners, and we are honored and glad that you're here. Basically, you come to church here. You partner with our mission and vision. We're glad you're part of this church here, every single one of us. I'm a partner with this church as well. I partner with the mission and vision of this church, and we're glad that you're part of this. But then some of us uh, will say, hey, not only do we want to partner with the vision and mission of this church, and we will volunteer and help out and do some of the kind of stuff that kind of moves the mission. We will give some tithes and offerings and help finances or give time. But some of us want to actually choose a tribe. We want to choose a tribe and say, this is our tribe, and we want to become a member. We want to become a leader. We want to actually invest in the direction of this church in a major way. Lindsay decided to do that. But she was already a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, and what happened was that uh, when she got baptized, somebody didn't record it. They were, like, writing a name and said, how do you spell Lindsay? I don't know. And uh, it's very complicated, isn't it? And so they forgot to do that. And so that's why we recorded her as Lindsay, as a profession of faith. Um, And uh, she actually found the photo of her baptism, so we have evidence. But we trusted you without the photo. (laughs) Her word alone was good. So we're really excited that Lindsay joined us today. I'm excited for her kids as well. Amazing. excited for her passion. Excited for her excitement. And she doesn't realize that by becoming a member, oh, Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, no, Shelley knows. Welcome. So much. And some of you are like, oh, no, I should not become a member. Yes, you should. I've just passed that on to you. You should. It's great. It's great. There's so many more things that we could all do together and we could live together. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, think about doing that. If you're a partner and you're thinking, I'm not engaged in this, then think about how to get engaged in this. It's actually really good inside that. But there are some people who are just thinking, I don't even know I'm a member, a partner, I don't even know, maybe I do trade God in, because I love the kingdom of man more than I love the kingdom of God. And this is the tension that we have, because we don't even understand what it is to be a true follower of God. And the image of the lion and the lamb is a tension for us. So John, quoting Isaiah, understanding Isaiah the prophet, I felt like we should really look at the book of Isaiah a little bit. So let's turn to the book of Isaiah, page 697. It's the very final chapter there. Page 697, the final chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66. Lion and the Lamb is the new series we're in. Um, in my office, I have a, a commentary. Uh, it's the Jewish Publication Society, on the, and this commentary is on the Torah. Um, and it is written, uh, actually, from uh, right to left, just like the Hebrew Scriptures are. And so you're welcome to come and have a look at it. It's beautiful. Um, and I only say this because we've actually started from right to left, in this, com- in this particular series. We're not going to do the whole book of Isaiah for the next four weeks. We are going to look, starting at Isaiah 66 this week, I'm going to preach this week, and then I'm preaching next week, and then Pastor Danny at the back there, he's going to preach on Isaiah chapter 59, and then I'm totally jealous of this, Pastor Tony's going to preach on Isaiah 53 uh, and the final week, and that will be the whole series on the Lion and the Lamb. And the reason why we're going from right to left is because we wanted to start with the intensity of Isaiah 66. I mean, when Isaiah starts to write this, this story, when he starts to kind of like get to the end of it, he he books, he he kind of like says, I I have this picture that I want to be able to say to you over here at the beginning of chapter one, but then I have this incredible picture over here that I'm going to mirror over here at chapter chapter 66 that's just phenomenal, so intense that when you read it, you're kind of overwhelmed. If you haven't read the book, if you haven't understood the journey, you're kind of overwhelmed by that chapter 66 because it is pretty powerful. And yet there are words inside it that are very discomforting to some people. Some people don't know what to do with this particular chapter, but it's pretty amazing. There are people who are very comfortable with the idea of the lion. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he is a lion. And we love this because when we have the lion, he is strong. He makes calls on our life. He decides everything. Everything is sorted out. He's victorious. We have guarantees of everything going on. Then there are people who really love the lamb. Oh, He's gentle and meek and he holds us and and he comforts us and he forgives us our sins and everything is kind of okay. We struggle with the idea that God is actually both the lion and the lamb because he is. John describes it this way. Isaiah describes it this way. The Bible captures this picture that God is both the lion, powerful and victorious, and he's also the lamb. So sometimes we get very personal with God. We get really intimate with God. We are so intimate with God like the Psalms do where we get angry with God and we will argue with God and we forget just how powerful God is. We forget how awesome God is, that he is great and he is all-powerful. Sometimes we remember how powerful God is. He is this lion. He is the king of the entire universe that we forget that he counts the hairs on our head and knows the intimate thoughts and the motivation that's going on in our lives, and that he cares about what we're thinking about and what we're doing with our lives. And so this contrast all the time inside here is difficult for us because we tend to be very much about our personalities. And then what we do as human beings is we, we play into our personalities. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Therefore, I cannot be. I can be. Right? That's what we do, and the reason why we do this is that we do not need to stretch ourselves, ever. Extroverts, like, I don't want to have any quiet time, because if I have quiet time, I'd have to reflect and talk to God differently. Introverts, I don't want to have to be around people, because if I have to be around people, I'd have to socialize and have friends. Oh, Lord, that would be horrible, right? Yet, we all need each other. So God says, I am the lion, and I am the Lamb. There are two things, two powerful images inside here. The other thing I need you to know before you get in chapter 66 is that uh, number one over here is that you need to know that Isaiah wrote it. Um, There are some people, some people who will say to you, no, it's written by two different people. There's a divide, it's two two sections. There are some who will divide it up into three sections, uh, and they will spend a lot of time debating this. And I can spend a lot of time explaining to you why they spend time debating it. Because they're lonely, Uh, they've got no friends, they're all like in a little circle, lonely, writing, all this kind of stuff. No, look, we can spend a lot of time explaining this, but let me tell you this. If you want to know the reason why I believe it's one writer who put it together, let's talk afterwards. But let me tell you this, the biggest struggle that people have to believe it's one author is because of the prophetic elements inside this book that it predicts 700 years in advance that John the Baptist would arrive, that it predicts that Jesus would arrive. And they're like, how could it know about Cyrus? How could it know about... It cannot know this kind of stuff. So people struggle with this. Number two, number two, which is pretty powerful over here, is that there is a, a sacred echo in this text, in chapter 66, and then throughout the entire book here. And you need, to, you need to hear inside this chapter that what he does at the end of chapter 66 is just a repeat of what has happened in chapter 1. There's a major difference in the Bible and a major difference in our understanding between tradition and traditionalism. And uh, we love traditionalism more than tradition. Uh, Traditionalism and tradition. Tradition is this. I am a person who believes in tradition. I believe that we learn from tradition. Tradition is actually where our roots come from, and it's very important to actually make sure that we understand tradition. There's creativity, there's freedom in tradition. Traditionalism, though, is where you go back to the past and you don't change anything, and you just copy the past. Tradition is where you go back to the past and you say, what can we learn from the past? What can we build on the shoulders of the great minds and thinkers and those who have struggled and worked with God on different things? So we should always go back to tradition rather than traditionalism. This is where the sacred echo takes place inside this chapter. And there's so much inside In fact, just chapter 66, I mean, inside here, it, you cannot really do anything much inside chapter 66 without realizing that it begins in chapter um, 1. So let's go to chapter 1 of here Isaiah. And uh, turn with, it, with me there real quick, and then we'll jump back into Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, I hope that you're inside the same book, so it's not hard to find Just going back a little bit. Isaiah chapter 1, verse verse 12 says this. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity, solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood." So you wonder, you wonder, because he begins here saying, look, the way you worship, the way you act, you raise your hands, it's just not real, it's not authentic enough inside here. So what is true worship? What is truly being a follower of God to say, God, you are so great? He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Read Luke chapter 4. Read what Jesus says about himself. Read how he quotes Isaiah. How he says, Behold, the times arrive right now. What is his mission? What is he quoting from Isaiah's side here? And then, verse 18, not only telling us that this is our mission and this is what I were called to, verse 18 says this Come now, let us reason together. And we love this verse. We love this verse because this is the echo that's taking place inside chapter 66 that tells us where it's coming from. But we love this. But he says, come, let us reason together. And everybody loves this because it says, well, this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to come together and discuss things with him as if God needs to discuss things. As if God's like, we've got a problem. God's like, yeah, I know. I don't know what to do. What do you think we should do? I think it's complex. I have no idea. Is that what it's saying? Because we kind of act like this text says that God's saying, yeah, come on, pull up a chair and a table, sit down, let's chat. I have no idea. Let's just look at the problem together from new angles because I don't know what to do about this kind of stuff. What's a great conversation? I I shared this the other day with some friends. A great conversation is where uh, two couples get together, four people are sitting down and they're talking. And one person says, uh, I've been to Venice. Venice. Another person says, "I've been to Venice too." That's good conversation so far. Third person of the other couple says, "I've been to Venice too." Fourth person says, "I've been to Venice as well." This is what we call conversation. Everybody's like, "We've all been to Venice. We all had something to share. We're all equal. We all can speak. Not somebody silent." A bad conversation is, I've been to Venice, I've been to Venice, I've been to Venice, and the last one says, oh, I've lived in Venice for three years. I speak fluent Italian. I know where the gelato made. I've been all over the place. You've just been to Venice? Oh, my goodness, I actually know where they make the leather there. I've been inside the rivers. I've been in the aqueducts. I know where the gold from, from the movies are made. I know everything about Venice. I know everything about you, simpletons, have just been to Venice. I am Venice. That is not a conversation. <laughs> right? That is just a slap down. <laughs> and the other three people are like, Yeah, I, I've just been to Venice. <laughs> they they are Venice. <laughs> right? When you come, let us reason together. Are you coming along saying, God, I've been to Venice? Or are you saying, God, I am Venice? Is God saying, I am Venice, or God saying, I've been to Venice? Hmm. Uncomfortable for us, maybe there's this really great book published a couple of years ago called the uh, in the it's called the enigma of reason and in the enigma of reason it actually suggests inside of that when it comes to reasoning reasoning is not actually about conversation reasoning is actually just our way of affirming a truth that we believe we say let's come together and talk so that i can prove to you what i actually already believe not to discuss anything That's why we reason together. So when Isaiah says, God says, come, let us reason together, it's not, come, let me tell you something so that you can tell me something and teach me something because I'm God and I need to learn from you right now. No, God says, come, let us reason together so I may teach you something about Venice for I am Venice and you have just visited it. And what is it that he says? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, They shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat to the good of the land. He says, But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This entire thing, this blessing and this curse, this tension all the way through, this thing that takes place over here is repeated and echoed back into chapter 66 right at the end. So let's go back to chapter 66 and see what he actually says inside here. And I, Vern read just the last portion of this text because I asked him just to read the last portion, of the, the tension part of this text. But there's so much inside the first part of this chapter. I'm just going to highlight a few of the technical moments inside here so that you you leave with a few of the drops inside here. But there's so much inside this chapter just dripping, forecasting, echoing, and alluding to as it pushes to the front and it pushes to the back and it pulls all over because Isaiah is overwhelmed with the presence of a great God. Remember what John said about him? He knew this God. He spoke of this God. This was the God that he knows and loves, and he could not end this book without speaking these great words. So in the very first six verses here, he basically says, listen, let me tell you a great vision, a great vision of who Jesus is. It's not about your temple, it's not about your religion, it's not about your company, your hospital. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. If you do, you will be a different people. Malachi, at the end, repeats the same idea, just pounds it out there and says, Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Do not get distracted by all the things that you can get distracted by. And then verses 7 through to 11 here, he says, look, Israel, you're going to fail, and you are failing. I mean, that's why we're in captivity here. But don't worry, I'm going to use a metaphor of a, of a miracle, birth. And the miracle of birth and a child coming along, and this child being comforted and cared for. In fact, Isaiah says, let me describe God to you in terms of God being a mother giving birth and caring for you, blowing their mind for them, right? Moving them into another world that they never imagined sight here. Then he gets to verses 12 to 17 and he says, God knows all that you have done great, and God knows all that you have struggled through as well. He says, he understands all this kind of stuff. He says, look, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. He says, I understand your brothers who hate you, verse 5, and cast you out. He says, look, I understand the struggles that you go in verse 12. And this is all an illusion. Jesus repeats the same thing to them in Matthew chapter 5, where he says the same words, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all other evils against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Isaiah is prophesying and giving future echoes to this kind of stuff inside here. All the time, pulling them forward, saying, I want you to understand there is something greater all the way forward inside here. And then he comes, as he ends off this section, before we get to the verse 18, which is our particular passage inside here. He says, look, the scribes at the time, struggled with this text as well. And he says, I know they're going to struggle with this text. I know people are going to struggle with this text as well. And so as they come to the end of this text, scribes notated on the manuscripts. When you read the final section here of 1824, and you get to the last verse, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have been rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die. He said, never end the scripture on that verse. You must not end the scripture on that verse. You must go back and repeat verse 23. So if you read a Jewish Bible, a Jewish complete Bible, it actually repeats verse 23 after verse 24. Wouldn't that be great if we could just edit the Bible to make it say what we want it to say? Right? If we're like, no, nope, Isaiah, we appreciate what you did, but actually what we think is that it should say this instead. There are things that the Bible say that is just very difficult for us to digest. And we would rather have a different tone and a different story told than the story that actually the prophets have actually uttered to us. Maybe it's because we didn't even understand what this passage was saying. Maybe it's because we misconstrued it in the very first place. Maybe because we don't even understand the character of God fully in the entire passage, entirely inside here. So, in the short time I have left, let me just kind of summarize this section here and then wrap this up for you so you get this. Verse 18. this is the tension point as we build out to verse 24, which is the verse that nobody kind of gets with us. Verse 18: "For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together to gather all nations and tongues." And what is he saying inside here? He's saying grace. That's all he's saying. He's saying grace. He says, I'm going to give you grace, and I'm going to gather everybody together. He's going to gather all the people. It's entirely opposite to the Tower of Abel. This is a promise that he does inside here. This is a promise that he's done to everybody before. It's a promise that he does to Abraham, through Abraham. It's a promise he's done in Genesis as well. It's a promise even to the future in Acts chapter 12, where he says, eventually the Jews and the Gentiles will be inside here. Are you with me? So as he says this in Isaiah 66, he says, look, look to the past inside here. Remember Abraham? I told him you will be a blessing to every tribe. And then he says, but don't worry. They won't get it entirely. In Acts chapter 12, the Jews and the Gentiles, you will become one people. And if you don't get this, Isaiah says, don't worry. The gospel, according to Isaiah, he says, it's going to go out to Tarshish and Paul and Ludd, all these places, weird names. Basically, Isaiah is saying, the entire known world that I understood and could describe to people at that time, I'm going to send out the gospel according to Isaiah everywhere. The whole world's going to know. You ever heard that idea before? Ever heard it before? He talks about this. Jesus says the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world. This is a prophetic call to us inside here. No wonder we are kind of struggling with the text because then he says, I'm going to bring all your brothers together inside the verses down here. And then, this is difficult because he says some of them, Some of them, I will choose to be priests. In other words, the Jews and the Gentiles, you'll come together. The people who you think are in and the people who you think are out, I will pull them together into one people. And then I will make priests of them. They're like, no, no, no. Only one tribe can be priests. He says, no, I'm going to bring everybody together and I will call some of them to be priests. I will call them to be leaders. And I'll ask them to step up because they belong together. Verses 22 to 23, he says, this is what community will look like because we will gather together and we will celebrate this in the new heaven and the new earth as well, which is the same story that Revelation says as well. It's the same echo. This book of Isaiah is kind of a description of the entire Bible as it ends as well saying the new heaven and new earth. And then we get to verse 24 and you have to ask yourself, really, is this what God says? Welcome to the new heaven and earth. And as you get to the new heaven and earth, you step out and you like, you see this graveyard, and you just trample all over the graveyard every day. This sounds like paradise, doesn't it? And it's just like all this thing going on? You no, know, he says, I understand that people are going to make choices, that's all he's saying. And there will be people who make choices that will live me me forever, and there'll be people who make choices and they'll be gone. And he says, this is horrible, and this is the pain of people making choices. And John says the same thing again. He says, Jesus went and did great miraculous signs, but they wanted to be associated with the synagogue. They want it to be associated with something else instead of being a follower of Jesus. He says, make a choice. Make a choice. I'm never going to force you. I'm going to allow you to be who you are. The gospel is open to all. It is inclusive for everybody. We would love it to be exclusive, but it's inclusive to everybody. Yesterday, I was flying from um, Ontario to uh, San Francisco, and then from San Francisco to Denver. I arrived on the very first flight. Arrived in San Francisco, and as I came off the plane, um, as I exited, I saw a friend of mine, and I was like, "Oh, I've been meaning to meet up with this friend of mine for a long time. I've just been so busy. I've had to like pull back." On Meeting lots of people and meeting friends and other people, and so I was like, I haven't seen this person in a long, long time. And as I pulled back, as I saw him, I I said, I walked over to him. He was in line to get some coffee, so I joined him in line where he was. Don't, no, no, I know. You're thinking that I got some coffee because he was in line. I did not. I do not approve of people cutting lines, unless it's for fellowship lunch. In that case, we semi approve. Um, so, I joined him in line, I said, hey, good to see you. Um, and I said, what are, you, what are you doing here in San Francisco? He explained, and he said, actually, he's taking a flight to Denver, and we found out we we're on the same flight. I said, great. Um, and, uh, and then I, he said to me, you know, he's going to take a bus from Denver heading back to Boulder. And I said, I, I actually just did a one-day trip, and so i am actually got my car there. I said, I'll drive you. Uh, so we ended up meeting, we've sat differently in the plane, and. Um, uh, and then we met at the airport, and we drove, so we got to talk a little bit because we were just boarding, and uh, we got to spend the whole time talking, Drive back to Boulder. And then he said, hey, let me take you out to lunch. And I was like, i got to write my sermon, but I will do lunch. I'll do lunch. And so uh, let, me, uh, let me do lunch. So we hung out, and we did lunch, and we, we talked. And uh, he's Methodist, and uh, he belongs to the tribe of Methodism, and I belong to the tribe of Adventism. And, uh, and so we dialogued about what's going on in the church right now, the Methodist Church. And they, they had their general conference session. Um, we as some of the Adventists have general conference sessions as well. Uh, we, uh, we emulated other models as well. And so uh, they had their general conference session this week, the United Methodist Church, where they discussed, what does the gospel mean? How do you make it inclusive and exclusive as well? Um, I don't think that tone was, how do you make it exclusive? It was more, how do you make it inclusive? And they voted. So he was explaining what his struggle is and what he's, what he's gonna do about it because he believes that the church has lost its way. They don't understand the difference between what I explained to him, tradition and traditionalism. We have to understand how to love people, how to love well, and how to live love. And it is very, very complicated. And yet it's actually very really simple, <laughs> so simple. Problem is that um, we call on his name Oh, great God. And uh, we worship on his name, oh, great God. And, um, and somebody says something to us and we switch. We become. And we have to learn how to reflect who God is more. Don't we? Don't we? That's what we have to do. We have to learn how to be able to declare that God is truly Lord of all. And he is the one who decides. This is the tension of this text inside here. God says, I am the lion. You're not the lion, I am the lion. I get to decide and I love all. And God says, I am the lamb. You're not the lamb, I am the lamb and I hold all. Not you, I hold all. We get to find people and tell them the story about the lion and the lamb. That's our job, just to tell them about the lion and the lamb. Not to be the lion and the lamb, because when we are the lion, we roar, and we have really dense teeth. When we're the lamb, we don't even know how to hold people properly. We need to point them always to Jesus and let Jesus handle and love people. That's what we need to do. We need to love them as best we know how and do that well. So I'm gonna invite you. I'm gonna invite you to do something that is difficult for some of you. I'm gonna invite you to come and stand here together with us and to sing this song, Lord of all. But here's the thing, when I invite you to come forward, what you do is this, and this is very good you come forward and you stand as far from each other as possible. You know why you do that? Because it means you actually have to meet people. You're like, oh my goodness, human beings. We need each other. You may not think you need each other today, but one day you may need each other. And so for the future, come and stand closer. So when I invite you to come stand, I invite you to come stand in the center right here. I don't invite you to come and be a Republican or Democrat. I come and invite you to stand in the center, right here. I don't invite you to come and stand here and say, I'm thinking this way or this way. I invite you to come stand here in the center, at the foot of the cross, effectively, before Jesus, because we are all united in the name of Christ. So rise with me, will you? Rise with me and let's sing the song, Lord of all. Emmanuel is gonna bless us at the end of this song. I'm gonna invite the kids, they're brilliant at this. They're gonna come and stand up here and they're gonna lead us in the song, Lord of all. And then Emmanuel's gonna bless us And this is one of the most beautiful things when somebody blesses at the end because they speak words of life. Yes, you can stand right as close to the, close as you can to the great chairs because if you stand too close here, it'd be horrific. But yes, that's it, closer. There's a whole great space in the middle here. It's just empty, crying out for us to. And then I'm gonna ask you to do something else. You can still come closer. There's lots of space. I'm gonna ask you to look the space. I, I gotta teach you how to walk, come closer. There you go, it's good, it's good. Now I'm gonna ask you to do something else and you're like, oh my goodness, something else, yes. I'm gonna ask you to look at the person next to you. Just look at them, don't have to linger, just look and then look away. And when you look back again, I want you to see Jesus in them. That's what I want you to do. I want you to see the face of Jesus in them and say, how great is our God? You look at them, and you say, how great is our God? I look at Dean, and I say, how great is our God, because I see Jesus in you. I look at Tom, and I say, how great is our God, because I see Jesus in you, that's what we need to do. We need to look at each other and say, how great is our God, because I see Jesus in you. And if we see Jesus in each other, we will see the Lion, and we will see the Lamb. This guy, Isaiah, his prophetic word will reach us in a new way. God calls us to sing that God is Lord of all.